Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Let's start out the show by thanking the people who donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Kim, Amelia, Sierra, Taylor, and Andrew, Ben, Renee, Mora, Ashley, Anna, Emma, Katie, Danielle, and Annie. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. Okay. I don't even know what you're doing this week. <laughs> I feel like I haven't talked to you in a year. A I'm week. like so out of it. I'm yeah. I'm trying to get my energy up. I feel like I'm getting sick maybe, so I'm trying not to get sick. But I don't think I'm sick. I'm like half I'm just sick. tired or something. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so this is a story I've been interested in for a while um, as far as doing it. And someone recently requested it on Instagram, I think, like mm-hmm. in, a com- in a comment or a message. But then I noticed on November 8th, it was the anniversary of her death. So I figured it was the perfect time to look into the life and mysterious death of journalist and game show star Dorothy Kilgallen. So do you know who she is? No. Okay. So this is going to be all <laughs> new information for you. Wow. <laughs> so... Uh, Dorothy Kilgallen was born in Chicago, July 3rd, 1913, and you might say she was kind of born into the journalism business. Her dad was Jim Kilgallen, a highly respected newspaper reporter. The family moved around a lot due to her dad's career, and in 1920, they ended up in New York City when he got a job as a correspondent for the International News Service, which was owned and operated by the Hearst Corporation. Now, after dropping out of college, Dorothy herself went into the business when she got a job as a reporter for the New York Evening Journal, which was also owned by the Hearst Corporation. So I'm sure her dad probably got hooked her up for the job. Uh, In September of 1936, Dorothy did something that would change her life forever. She took part in a race around the world against two fellow newsmen. Now, Dorothy left at 11 p.m. on the Hindenburg, hoping to complete the trip in 21 days. During that time, like while she was on this trip, she would write all of her like daily journals of what happened on her travels on a laptop type laptop typewriter. They raced in the Hindenburg. I think she took other forms of transportation too, but it was like this race around the world. But she started her journey on the Hindenburg, which I is feel like, like a wild. People seem to do that a lot more like a hundred years ago. Yeah, like that was an exciting thing to do. Yeah, because it was like new, probably. Sounds they exhausting. Have, they have all these transportation modes that didn't exist. Yeah, so it was like, ooh, let's do something boring. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like to go around the world, but not in a fast way. Because yeah. then you're not really seeing anything. It's just a matter of doing something, right? I don't do any racing. Um, so 
she wanted to complete the trip in 21 days, um, but she ended up making it in a little over 24 days, but she did come in second place. Now, this race made her really famous. Her old neighborhood in Chicago like had pictures of her everywhere and like decorations when she landed. like It was like a big deal. She even got a congratulations letter from Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the first lady at the time. Um, all of the reports that she wrote during this trip were compiled into a book that was published, and the book is titled Girl Around the World. That was made into a movie called Fly Away Baby, which... I need it around the way, <laughs> Seriously, <girl>. right? <laughs> uh, it, so a movie was based on the book that, was com- that came out in 1937 called Fly Away Baby. Uh, a song was written about her called Hats Off to Dorothy. <laughs> you know that old song? Hats Off to Dorothy? Yeah, I know. Love yeah, that. That's a sure. banger. Hats Off to Dorothy. <laughs> Oh, Dodie, oh, do. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> so I looked the movie up just out of curiosity, and it's like wildly different. It's not her story at all. It's basically um, it's basically just the woman is going around the world on this trip, but she's a crime reporter. Uh, that's like the Dorothy role. And it turns into this murder mystery around Ooh. this trip around the world. And uh, apparently this was like a series of mystery movies um, in the Torchy Blaine she was the girl reporter, Torchy Blaine. That's a great name. <laughs> Isn't that a good name? I was like, that's a great name for yeah. like something like a drag queen or something. Uh, so yeah. So she was pretty famous. So she's like a big personality now. She's kind of like a socialite. She's on the scene. She's really witty and smart and fun. So she's pretty popular in all kinds of circles from Hollywood types to intellectuals. Um, this is like, when I hear kind of life like this, I'm like, I would love to live during this period and just be the life of the party. <laughs> Do you know how easy it would be to be like the shocking little like person at the dinner table who said the things that made everyone laugh and kind of like, ooh. But it's also great because there's no like cameras in everyone's pockets. Yes. So So it's like more, you just become legend. I just always love hearing about that kind of period, New York during like the 30s and 40s, like, or even 20s, I guess. But like, yeah. So in November of 1938, she gets a daily column called The Voice of Broadway for Hearst New York Journal American. Now, this column, which she wrote until her death in 1965, it's pretty much New York showbiz news and gossip, but she does kind of go into other topics like politics and crime. Um, This is like the, like she's up there with like Walter Winchell and like Hedda Hopper. Like she's a big time gossip columnist, but she does focus in on New York. Now, uh, this column is eventually syndicated to 146 newspapers. Uh, She gets pretty fucking rich from this and she actually moves her parents from Brooklyn to Manhattan. She was still living with them at the time. So they like moved on up. Like it's funny always too when when it's like Brooklyn. <laughs> like right. now Brooklyn is so expensive too. Right. Like but back then it was like we're in Manhattan now. We're moving on up. Uh so yeah, she's she like is able to move her family into the big city. Now on op- on April 6, 1940, Dorothy marries an actor named Richard Colmar, Dick Colmar. He's like a music comedy theater actor who starred in shows like Knickerbocker Holiday, like those kind of Oh, old, those shows. Yeah, I love those shows. <laughs> uh, um so they eventually go on to have three children, Jill, Dickie Jr., <laughs> and Carrie, who's a boy. Uh, so, yeah. The couple eventually make the leap into radio and were quite successful there. Dorothy had a radio version of her column, Voice of Broadway, that was really popular. And in April of 1945, she and her husband had a show called Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick. <laughs> Sorry. I want breakfast with Dick. <laughs> 
Um, so, <laughs> so this um, this show was kind of like very similar to her newspaper column. They're basically sitting in their apartment, having coffee, like kind of like us sitting in here right. doing a podcast, shooting the shit about the news. Right. I mean, and it's like sort of like low key, kind of like Romy coming in and taking a shit. Like the kids would run in during the podcast oh. and be like, mom, like, and that was like part of the show too. So it was like these rich people with their just real life, like shooting the shit about the daily, you know, whatever's going on in the world. That's cool. So it was pretty uh, popular. I mean, much like Rachel, I don't think people realize who she is n- anymore, but back then she was really a big celebrity. Like, as I mentioned before, her, her column is like syndicated in 146 uh, newspapers, which is over 20 million readers wow. back in that time. What year is this? It's like the 40s. It's in the 40s? Yeah. So she started it in the late 30s and now we're into the 40s. So it's a pretty big deal and it's like one of Hearst newspapers most like successful columns. She like as I mentioned earlier, was in the elite social circles in New York. Um, the New York Times uh, quoted a colleague of hers who described her as a newspaper man in a $500 dress, which was a lot of money back then. Um, she was also so famous that she was invited to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II when the Queen made her visit to America in 1957, her first visit. Dorothy actually rode in the procession the procession in her own limousine. Like she was part of that. Like that's how big she was when the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, um, saw her at a nightclub, they would go over and like have caviar with her and stuff like that. Um, a New York, a times, I'm sorry, a time magazine report on her, like talked about her and they said she had one of the biggest expense accounts in the business. That sounds amazing. Sounds great. Just love an expense account. Love it. Love it. Even a small one. (laughs) (laughs) So, she also, and this I thought would be of special interest to you, Rachel, Ruben's Restaurant, which was a big restaurant in New York at the time, had a sandwich named in her honor. Ooh. Do you think I spent literally an hour trying to find out what it was? What was the sandwich? I tried, and oh. no, I could not find it. Well, I literally was searching fucking everywhere. You couldn't find the Dorothy? I couldn't find what the sandwich was. Oh. I needed to know what that fucking sandwich was. Do you know there is a sandwich named after me, the Rachel? Where? And I do order the Rachel often. Where? Well, just everywhere. It's like a, the Rachel is the is the like uh, girl version of the Reuben. Oh, I had no idea. What it's, is that? It's a it's Reuben, like but with turkey. And that's what oh. I order. That is my sandwich order. But so it's I, like sauerkraut, Swiss cheese. Russian dressing, rye bread, but turkey tur- instead of pastrami. Oh. And that's my order. Huh. Interesting. So I didn't uh, find out what it was, but it was a dollar. At the time. Well, that's so, really inexpensive. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe that- it was like $10 then. <laughs> <laughs> so now the marriage between Dick and Dorothy was obviously pretty successful, but uh, she had a lot of affairs still. One of the people she had an affair with and that she actually fell madly in love with was a singer who I, I see described a lot as, I, I can never say this word, a feat. Effet. 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 Is that how you said? Effet. Yeah. A singer named Johnny Ray. I looked up his songs. I honestly, they had vague, vaguely familiar with for me, but I didn't really recognize them. But I think he was like a B-level crooner type singer. Right. But 
I read a bit about him and he actually seems like he'd be a good episode one day because he was a closeted gay guy who got arrested a lot in Hollywood and had like a lot of scandals, but I'm not going to really get into him right now, but I was kind of reading, I was kind of reading about, I think it might be a combo maybe with another kind of similar case, Okay, but it was really interesting. I was like, holy shit. Like (laughs) he's like the George Michael of his day. Like something he's getting it all like arrested in bathrooms and stuff. Um, crazy. So their relationship was obviously, she might've been in love with him, but he was kind of probably just using her as a cover uh, or whatever. Now, uh, if that wasn't enough to convince you that she was very famous, she also had a notable celebrity feud with Frank Sinatra. Wow. So they were initially pretty good friends, um, for several years. Um, she was like, she would be like at his radio studio for a broadcast, like while he was performing. So they like knew each other pretty well, but they had a falling out after she wrote a multi-part 1956 front page feature titled the Frank Sinatra story in which she broke bombshell news about his slew of affairs with people like Lana Turner, Anita Ekberg, Gloria Vanderbilt, and Kim Novak. Sinatra went fucking ballistic when she published this. I mean, like what if I got, (laughs) can you imagine like if I got a writing job for some paper and I published a front page story about all of your personal information? (laughs) I'd go ballistic too. I mean, but I can't imagine doing that to a friend. It just seems so weird to me. It's like a, well, first of all, they probably weren't close, close friends. Right. But still, it, it, it was also like her job. Yeah, I guess. So that. it was kind of like, it would he, still be awkward. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely awkward and she paid a price for it. Now, I was actually talking to a friend of mine. Uh, I mentioned this to him earlier and he said that what I'm about to say is something that Sinatra did regularly and that's rag her during his nightclub shows. (laughs) Like he would take his vendettas and use it as his monologue material during his nightclub performances, like in between songs, like go after people who had like come after him. He'd be like in this Dorothy Dane. Yeah. It was like his banter, but he would do it not with just her, but with like everyone who he had felt like slighted by or whatever. Now he would, um, not mention her by name, but he would call her the chinless wonder. He also sent a tombstone to her home at some point, which is like pretty scary for someone who has mob connections, (laughs) like pretty like widely held, you know, but knowledge. Now I read an article by Dominic Dunn about Dorothy and he commented on this feud with Sinatra and the chinless wonder uh, thing uh, he said, Kill Galen was not a pretty woman. She had an unfortunate chin, which robbed her face of beauty. But on opening nights and at El Morocco in the store club, she projected an aura of glamour with her magnificent evening dresses and jewels. She had wit, power, and a mean streak. Everybody uh, read her, and a lot of people were afraid of her. Frank Sinatra hated her, as well as Johnny Carson and Jack Parr, who took pot shots at her all the time as well. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? 
If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. Now, you can look up pictures. We'll post a picture of... She just has that that chin that kind of isn't there. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's kind of pretty, but there's definitely that thing. Maybe because she wasn't like a traditional standard for beauty people also thought it was okay to publicly trash her too or gave them more of a reason to trash right. her and i don't think she cared right because she she's did like it. a bit she's a bitch right and i mean that as a compliment like <laughs> she didn't fucking care like right. she's really smart she's fucking funny she didn't and be- she's powerful yeah like so it's a cheap shot because she's probably smarter than than frank sinatra <laughs> like do you know what i mean like Yes, she's not Ava Gardner, but who fucking cares? Like, not many people are. Uh, Anyway, I hate when people go after someone's one obvious flaw in a feud instead of actually fighting on their level. Do you know what I mean? Like, taking those cheap shots. But whatever. Uh, I'm sure she was fine. And uh, like I said, she, she looks glamorous in a lot of things. So... What Dorothy is probably most well known for, like outside of all of this stuff, is her 15 year uh, stint on old school iconic game show, What's My Line? She became a panelist on this game show during its like first ever broadcast, which aired live on February 2nd, 1950. If you don't know the show, I'm going to just give you a, be- like a little rundown of what it is. It's really popular. It's a panel show that sort of has well-known panelists, including people like Dorothy and Steve Allen. And what they do is they guess the occupation of an everyday person who has a very unusual career. That's the what's my line. Like it's an old school, my line, my career. Um, so the guests kind of go on the show and their their goal is to stump the panel 
who are asking the questions. The panel members get to keep guessing until they get a no answer. So they do a lot of tricks to always try to get a yes so they can keep questioning. And then I think the pot goes up the longer this person gets no. Like if he doesn't get guessed, his pot gets bigger and he wins more money at the end of it all. Now they would also have um, a popular segment where they would have a mystery guest that was a celebrity come on. So the panel would then be blindfolded. So the audience was kind of in on who the person was. And they're asking these questions, which would make it even funnier because it would be someone like Salvador Dali, Woody Allen, Jane Mansfield sitting there. And they would be like, are you a, like whatever. It was like, it was like a hoot. Right. So Dorothy was actually the mystery guest one time. It was like a big thing. I read somewhere that the panel would always kind of know who the celebrity was because everyone knew who was in town or whatever. Um, But they would always go through one round of questioning and it was just like a really popular show. And it's quite funny. You can find clips of it online and check it out based on what celebrity you want to see because almost every celebrity from sports, art, entertainment is on this show. Um, I think it was rebooted a few times. And then there was also a very popular stage show that was done like... I think it was like Frank DeCaro. Do you know him? It was like a very gay (laughs) stage show version of this show. And I think Guy Branham did it too recently. It's like very campy. uh, So one of the iconic things about the show that you might know, even if you don't know the show, is that this is where the question, is it bigger than a bread box came from? Really? Yes. So... Some I think Steve Allen might have asked it at some point, and then it became the sort of go-to sort of funny question. In fact, one time Dorothy asked the question as sort of a goof, and the person was actually a breadbox maker, and the host literally lost his shit when she asked it. So based on him losing it, the next panelist was able to immediately guess that he was a breadbox maker just based on the reactions. So yeah, that's where that question came from. Throughout all of this radio and TV stuff, Dorothy is still writing her column and reporting on some pretty big cases, which I will highlight right now. One of the biggest cases that Dorothy covered and um, eventually played an instrumental role in was the 1954 murder trial of Sam Shepard, the doctor who was accused of bludgeoning his wife Marilyn to death at their home in Cleveland. This case was fucking huge and will probably be an episode of Movie versus Reality one day because it inspired the movie The Fugitive and the TV show. It's really juicy. I was like reading about it for her and I was like, shit, like I have to stop reading this because I was like, I didn't know, I didn't know all of these things. So I'm just going to kind of cover Dorothy's role in it. We will definitely cover this case at some point because it's pretty wild. Um, So the big thing about this case is that um, it had a lot of publicity. It was one of the first cases that was extensively covered in the media, newspapers and other media in Ohio were accused of bias against him and the coverage was like really inflammatory. Uh, it was criticized for immediately labeling him the only viable suspect so that police like were really looking at the media and being like, well, we can't look anywhere else. He's the one like, it's like they were influencing the police, like, which is sick. Like that shouldn't be the way it is. A federal judge later criticized the media. If ever there were a trial by newspaper, this is a perfect example. And the most insidious example was the Cleveland press. For some reason, that newspaper took it upon itself to, to play the role of accuser, judge, and jury. The local um, media, as I mentioned, influenced the investigators. And it was like such a direct way that's really disturbing. Um, for instance, they would have headlines like, telling the, um, they had the prosecutor do it now, arrest him. Why isn't he in jail? Which actually led the police for 
to bring him into jail because the, they were felt so much pressure by the newspapers telling them what to do, but wow. they weren't doing anything properly. Um, things got really salacious and tabloidy. tabloidy. Um, things were based on zero fact and things were often disproved later, but they were already out there. One of the things was that a New York City woman claimed to be his mistress and the mother of his illegitimate child, completely false. Uh, the jury was not sequestered. So later on, two of the jurors admitted to the judge that they had heard all of this stuff and the judge had never told them to dismiss what they had heard outside of the trial. Um, the jurors years later would admit that they really were contaminated by the press before the trial and during the trial. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court later would call the trial a carnival atmosphere. Now, Dorothy was one of the few journalists covering the case at the time who was outraged by what she was seeing. And that was like a really unpopular opinion to have because everyone was sure this guy was guilty. It would be like someone being like, no, OJ is innocent. Like, not that there weren't people, but not like in a major way. Like, reporters were kind of keeping neutral. Uh, so she was sort of like on the outs. Um, he was found guilty after the first trial. Um, in fact, she was such a big part of the case that she was a headline when he was found guilty, where it said that, you know, Kilgalen astounded by guilty verdict. Like she was like actually at the news story in one of the papers because she was arguing so much at this point for, for um, what she considered serious flaws in the prosecutor's case. Now, she actually got dropped from some of the newspapers in Cleveland, her column, because of this like position she had taken. Okay. Nine years after the verdict and sentence, the judge who had been on that case died, and she was um, like speaking at an overseas press club in uh, Florida, I think. Oh, no, it was in New York. So she's talking about the judge that she said before she had before the trial had jury selection, she went back and was speaking to the judge, and he said to her that Shepard was guilty as hell. Now, someone in the audience at that, that press club thing where she was speaking was attorney F. Lee Bailey, who at the time was working on a habeas corpus petition for Sam Shepard. He was the new lawyer for Sam Shepard. So he's obviously very interested in the fact that the judge on the case thought he was guilty before the trial even right. started. Now, he speaks to Dorothy after this press club uh, thing in his biography, uh, The Defense Never Rest. He says, we obtained a deposition from Dorothy that was inserted into the petition, submitted to the judge for the United States District Court for the Southern District of Ohio. Uh, that's his habeas corpus petition statement. Um, that sort of corroborated some other evidence they had from a county clerk who worked with that judge back in back when the trial was happening. And he sort of said the judge um, had said the same thing to him, that he was guilty as hell. So in 1964, of J July of 1964, four months after that press club event, um, the judge of the federal court granted Bailey's habeas corpus petition. Sam Shepard was released from prison and he eventually is retried and acquitted of all charges. Wow. So she basically is responsible for him getting released from prison. He was like an innocent man that was like, uh, you know, in prison. Another trial where Kilgallen became a real part of the story was the obscenity trial of Lenny Bruce. She is one of four witnesses who testified in his defense um, in this during this trial where he was facing obscenity charges in New York City. Now you can look up online and uh, read her testimony. And it's pretty funny. Like she's basically brought in as an expert on um, art 
almost <laughs> like, cause she sees so many Broadway plays and performances. She's kind of like, they're like, what's normal. Do people say these kind of words or like when you read a book, do they have this kind of language? Like they'll like ask her specific um, things like in a Williamsboro, did you read Naked Lunch? Does that have dirty language? <laughs> like it's so stupid. And one sort of passage that I thought was really funny is that the prosecutor is saying to her, I'm asking you to listen to this tape from April 1st. Read the portion starting tits and ass. That's what the attraction is. It's just tits and ass, tits and ass, tits and ass. <laughs> He's like saying Lenny Bruce's comedy routine. And she's like, well, I don't think it's shocking. It's just a word. He's like, do you use those words in your column? She's like, never. And he's like, do you know what Lenny Bruce was talking about? And she's like, yes, I think he's being criti- critical of the monotony of what's on view in Las Vegas. <laughs> like that was what the joke was. Like all you do is see right. tits and ass when you're, but they're acting like it's this obscene. It's like pretty funny and she's pretty rad and she's like defending him and basically calling bullshit on the prosecutor's like case. Um, And I feel like Lenny Bruce will probably also be a story, so I'm not going to get too far into that. She also got into more political stories and was rumored to have sources in uh, government, including in the CIA. There is a whole section of the Internet devoted to her because she has a belief in the existence of UFOs. She claimed to have a source within the British military that told her they had recovered a crashed UFO. I'm not getting into that because newsflash, I fucking hate UFO stuff. But if you're interested, there's a lot of stuff with her UFO. There was like some big story in the UK uh, where some UFO crashed. I don't know. I know Rachel doesn't like it either, so I don't. <laughs> I, I I believe in aliens. I'm just... But the whole UFO like stuff the is The UFO like, sighting stuff, for some reason, doesn't interest me. Yeah. But I definitely believe in aliens. Um, so there's a, a writer who... His book, I'll mention later as well. His name is Mark Sean. He wrote a book called The Reporter That Knew Too Much. And he's like, we're going to get into some conspiracy stuff here. And he's pretty much um, someone who's driving conspiracy theories about Dorothy Kale Galen. Now he says that she was the first reporter to write about that, that the CIA and mafia were conspiring to assassinate Fidel Castro. Now this story immediately got new enemies for her, including FBI director uh, J. Edgar Hoover. He added her to his watch list and when files were open years later, they like I guess his scrawl was near her name. I think a lot of his files, he has like the writing on these files, like his personal writing. He described her as flighty and irresponsible. Declassified documents show that the FBI was monitoring her activities since the 1930s, and the CIA was closely watching her travels overseas. There's rumors that Dorothy is also friendly with JFK. I'm guessing it's more of the fact that they were running in the same circles type of thing and probably knew a lot of the same people. But she only met uh, President Kenny once, and that was on a visit to the White House. So this is from that book I mentioned before. Uh, During this time, Kilgallen arranged through a friendship with Presidential Press Secretary Pierre Salinger a visit to the White House with her son, Carrie. When the eight-year-old redhead and his mother arrived, Salinger conducted the tour himself. While in the cabinet room, President Kennedy suddenly appeared. He invited Dorothy and Carrie into the Oval Office. They sat and chatted. JFK looked at a bundle of letters Carrie had brought to the president by his third-grade classmates. Um, So it was like a cute little meeting with her son. Um, But that was the extent of their uh, relationship. She did, however, have a great deal of information at her disposal about his affairs. So on August 3rd, 1962, she 
dropped some blind items in her column about the president and his um, meetups and affair with Marilyn Monroe. The next day, Monroe commits suicide, leading many to wonder uh, if there was something fishy about her death and connection to Kennedy. Um, As we know, her death is another mystery. We're not going to get into that right now, but maybe we will do an episode on her one day when we're running out of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> things to do. I don't know. Maybe we'll do it. I, I mean, I like her story, but it's definitely been done to death. Yeah. The next big case that Kilgallen is a part of and the one that would color the circumstances of her death forever is the JFK assassination that we all know happened on uh, November 22nd, 1963. Now, as much as pretty much everyone was, Dorothy is devastated by the news of John Kennedy's death and she becomes obsessed with the case. She increasingly turns her attention and her crime investigation skills to the assassination of the president and what happened and finding out what happened there. She makes a name for herself as one of the first and very few people in the mainstream press to question the Warren Commission's reports and their tactics and their fine as well as their tactics. Uh, she pulls no punches as she writes the first article on the FBI's intimidations of witnesses. Uh, she interviews Akila Clemens, who was a witness to the shooting of Officer J.D. Tippett. That's the cop that, um, uh, fuck, what's his name? Who's the killer? Slipping my mind. Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. He's the, that's the cop that he shot after he shot JFK. He yeah. killed a cop. Um, so she questions this guy who saw, saw the, the murder of the cop and claims that he saw two men at the scene and not... Oswald. So she like is the only person who interviews this guy and he's never called in by the Warren Commission. But her biggest get was interviewing Jack Ruby. She was the only reporter allowed to interview Jack Ruby while he was in prison um, awaiting trial for mur- the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, if you don't know, I'm just going to tell you that Jack Ruby is the man who shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald, who was the supposed assassin of President Kennedy in a Dallas police station two days after Kennedy died. It's like one of the most watched and uh, shocking historical moments. It happened on I live mean, TV. Yeah. So it's like, I can't even imagine how crazy that was to see. Uh, he himself had some dubious <laughs> sort of business dealings. He owned a nightclub in Houston or Dallas called the Carousel. And he had friends in like both law enforcement and the mafia. So he just had like a lot of connections uh, to things like that. Now, she meets with Ruby behind closed doors, and afterwards, she travels to New Orleans and interviews the mafia head, a man named Carlos Marcello, and she's just, like, prying into, like, what they know about the assassination. In a stunning, like... Some, uh, like a stunning sort of scoop, I guess. She secures Ruby's testimony to the Warren Commission and breaks the story on front uh, the front page of the journal American three months ahead of the commission's public release. Wow. So she like breaks this fucking story like in a major way. Now, regarding the Warren report in her newspaper, she says, at any rate, the whole thing smells a bit fishy. It's a mite too simple that a chap kills the president of the United States, escapes from that bother, kills a policeman, eventually is apprehended in a movie theater under circumstances that defy every law of police procedure, and subsequently is murdered under extraordinary circumstances. It is a pretty wild (laughs) set of circumstances. Yeah. Uh, Doesn't mean it's not true, but like, yeah, it's pretty unusual. Um... She's like a real conspiracy theorist. Like she's one of the OG JFK conspiracy theorists. Like she doesn't buy anything that anyone is selling in this case. She doesn't believe that Ruby killed Oswald because he was so affected by Kennedy's death. Like she thinks there was other reasons. 
Um, she writes in her column that if Lee Harvey Oswald's widow ever told the whole story of her life with Oswald, it would split open the front pages of newspapers all over the world. She's not telling anyone about the contents of her interview with Ruby at this point, but she is sort of laying hints with people. Uh, friends of her. She tells her attorney they've killed the president and the government is not prepared to tell us the truth. She's told several friends that she plans to break the case wide open. Uh, She talks about the conspiracy theories and that it's the biggest scoop of the century. Her last column uh, item regarding the assassination, which is published on September 3rd, 1965, she writes, this story isn't going to die as long as there's a real reporter alive. And there are a lot of them. And she definitely considered herself fucking one of them. Now, in November of 1965, she's talking to her makeup artist, Charles Simpson, and she tells him that she's going to crack the JFK case open. Uh, He would later grant a video interview after her death and state that Dorothy said to him, if the wrong people knew about what I know about the JFK assassination, it would cost me my life. On November 8th, 1965, Dorothy goes to CBS studio and records What's My Line, and then she goes back to her Manhattan townhouse, which is on East 68th Street. The show ran uh, late that evening, um, but it it hit 20 20 million households, and by the time the show aired, it's possible that she was already dead. The next morning, her maid finds her cold, sitting upright in a third-floor bedroom that she never used. She's still wearing her makeup from being on the show. She's wearing the hairpiece, the false eyelashes, like whatever she's wearing for the show. Um, she claims, uh, the author who wrote the book claims, that Shaw, he claims that she never wore those items to bed. I mean, that's pretty obvious. And that the stage, uh, the scene seems staged to him. The following week, the New York City Medical Examiner rules that the cause of death is an acute overdose of alcohol and barbiturates and adds that um, a notation saying the circumstances are undetermined. Another thing that kind of muddies the waters is that one of the first stories that announced her death, in it her father says that Dorothy had apparently suffered a heart attack. Uh, That's just misinformation, but it's like another sort of thing that people are like, wait a minute. The dad said that's just misinformation? Yeah. No, the dad said that she suffered a heart attack, but then that's proven. It wasn't that. Oh. So he puts out some misinformation that also people are like, wait a minute. Um, It's sort of like starting to have this sinister story uh, effect. And I think especially because of her relationship to this JFK story. Now, I mean, obviously that could just be a grieving father, making an assumption of what happened and not knowing what exactly what went down. There was no evidence of foul play. A week later in the November 15th, 1965 uh, journal American, the assistant medical examiner uh, basically said that the death of Dorothy Kilgallen was contributed to by a combination of moderate quantities of alcohol and barbiturates. Um, so it was made pretty official. He goes on to talk about like why she was on these pills and booze. The doctor? Yeah. Like saying like, oh, she's, you know, had a lot of tension, meeting a lot of deadlines for her performances, and she was taking this to like ease into sleep or whatever. Um, the levels that she had in her system were very small, by the way. So it wasn't like an overdose. It level. wasn't like an OD. I mean, it was an overdose, but not in like a dramatic, like a major way. Like if you were going to kill yourself, you would do like a lot. Right? So you're telling me that the cause there at this point, there's no official cause of death, right? There's no cause of death. They're just as far as they're leaning towards accident, but they're not like saying it's suicide, accident, murder. They don't right. really know, but they know that it was caused by this, uh, whatever, this their combination. Okay. Um, 
and that her heart stopped, basically. So there are a lot of mysterious elements to her death. Um, So the guy I just mentioned, the medical examiner, his name was Dr. James Luke. He did not sign the death certificate. It was actually signed by another physician who, when questioned, did not know why his name was on the certificate or why he wasn't even working in Manhattan at the time. So that's like one of those things where it's like, ah, it could just be someone (laughs) fucked up. Right. But conspiracy theories are always like, what the, (laughs) like, that's like a major thing for them, right? Uh, in 1968, they were able to do like a more extensive uh, toxicology report on her tissue samples that they had saved. And it was um, determined that it was a fatal mix of three barbiturates, um, secobarbital, amobarbital, and pentobarbital. And she was not a known uh, drug user. So people were like, what? Um, she was spotted at the Regency Hotel after she taped her show chatting with a stranger in a booth that night. People speculate, oh, is that a source? Was this man someone who put something in her drink? Her favorite drink, I guess, had quinine in it. So I'm guessing it's like, what, gin and tonic or something? Um, And that supposedly can mask the taste of barbiturates. The Regency is seven blocks from her home, and it's unknown how she got to um, her house from the Regency or what happened during that period. But she wasn't with any of her known acquaintances or friends during those final hours. Now, in 1975, her son, Dickie, is contacted by the FBI concerning his mother's JFK, JFK papers. He told them the notes were still missing. Um, and so people find it interesting that the FBI is still interested in her papers at that late date, considering that it had already been basically decided that Oswald was the murderer of the president. What, what information would they need at that point in time? Now, obviously, like people who are trying to murder and make a victim look like they committed suicide. Like that's their, you know what I mean? Like uh, it's like they all have this thing that sort of works against them in these cases because they don't really know what that person's personal habits are. So one of the things that stand out is that she was doing a lot of things that weren't in her character. Uh, she was not in her bedroom. She was in a different bedroom on the third floor for some reason. She wasn't in her typical sleep attire. She had her makeup and hair on, which she never would have done. She didn't have her reading glasses that she needed to read. Uh, and the book by the side of her bed was one that she had already read. So like all of those little things. It's like people... she was posed. Yes. So people are saying, well, if she was going to kill herself she would have put herself in a more maybe where her favorite bed was or like it would have made more sense, but this had this elements of being staged to them. Now, obviously there's just as many uh, points you can make where that it is just an accidental uh, death. Her husband was in the apartment at the time as well as her son sleeping in a different bedroom. Um, So it'd be really weird if someone came in and did something without them knowing. Uh, She... I mean, this is sort of like, oh, supposedly against her suicide, although it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but she seemed in good spirits. There was nothing about her that had ever been depressed or whatever. Uh, So that's something people point to. There was no trauma or signs of violence or of any struggle uh, in her room. Um, So people sort of have a hard time believing there was some kind of, you know, gang of thugs who came in and like whatever mafia guys and took her out. Another element that people sort of always point to is that she died the same way that Marilyn Monroe died, basically like a barbiturate overdose. Like the same people who 
allegedly took out Marilyn Monroe, took out her. Right, that was like their MO. So, I mean, yeah, there's that kind of, people just didn't buy that it was a suicide. So I, I kind of tend to lean toward an accidental OD. That seems pretty likely to me. Um, she was working on a book at the time. And I mean, it is kind of interesting though that none of her notes or tapes from the Jack Ruby uh, interview were ever discovered. Now, Dominic Don in his, uh, the, the um, article he wrote on her, which was like one of his like, it wasn't like an in-depth one. It was one of those like, ooh, and this happened. It was kind of like a gossipy column one where he would do one a week or something, you know, those mm-hmm. shorter ones. So I guess some woman called in when he was on Larry King and asked about Dorothy Kilgallen, and that was why he wrote this little like summary of her life. Um, another rumor he brings up in that article uh, is that the pills in her stomach had not dissolved so that they were undigested. And that was sort of another thing people speculated about, like she didn't really die of the OD because the pills had never even digested. Liz Smith, who was another famous gossip Colin, uh, spoke to Dominic Don and said that the late Arlene Francis, who was on uh, What's My Land as a panelist a lot, said that that evening she died, Dorothy wasn't drunk at all. And she... So the fact that she had alcohol and her system was suspicious to her, but she could have obviously had it afterwards, you know, it wasn't that much. Um, So yeah. Now, another death connection, like if you look up, there's whole websites that are called like mysterious JFK connection deaths. And (laughs) And it's literally hundreds of people who have one little string of attachment to something. Right. But now there is like this rumor that she said to a friend of hers who was like a fellow journalist if I die, here's like all my Jack Ruby tapes and uh, notes from my interview. If something happens to me. that like, There's a note from Dorothy? Uh, no, it's a rumor. There's no note. There's a rumor. Yeah, there's a rumor. And this woman is named uh, Florence Pritchett Smith. Now, she was the wife of like a USA, I'm sorry, US ambassador to Cuba. So kind of like a political guy um, and a friend of Dorothy's. Now, she died two days after Dorothy Whoa. in a very similar way, Whoa. upright in her bed. Whoa. <laughs> um, and there was like early kind of speculation that she did also die of an OD, but it turned out the medical examiner said that she died of a cerebral hemorrhage um, and that she had been off and on in bad health since mid-August. But obviously, that's another thing that people got their little panties in a dither over because it's like this other connection to her who died two days later in yeah. like a very similar, not the same way, but like in a similar, similar circumstance. And then she also had the connection to Cuba, which is just very tied in to the JFK assassination and mafia and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah. So basically those papers are never found. Her husband is obviously asked about this like for the rest of his life. Uh, he tells people that her knowledge has done enough damage already, which is pretty weird way of saying saying it. Whoa. So who the hell knows why he took that path? Like and that said instead of saying there's nothing, like you people are fucking crazy. Five years after Dorothy, he takes his own life uh, by swallowing a bunch of pills. Um, the medical examiner was not able to call that a suicide either. Was That's, suicide like much harder to like kind of know back then? Like, how were they not able to say it was suicide just because the amount that he took wasn't that much? 
I I don't know. Like I couldn't find that much Wild. on him, but yeah. So now she's also the subject of a biography by Lee Israel, our favorite uh, celebrity biographer oh my and God. literary scam artist. Uh, she wrote one of her books is on Dorothy Kilgallen. Wow. So in that book, uh, which I didn't read, she speculates that the CIA silenced Dorothy, um, but they were never able to find the notes or tape um, about from the Ruby interview. And that's always kind of, um, that was sort of why they killed her. And it's just sort of why they're still kind of looking, sorry, they're still kind of looking into like trying to get those tapes and papers. Right. Um, which no one knows where they are. No one ever found those. No. So... Now, there are a ton of people who are still going after this case, including that author I mentioned before, Mark Shaw. He has a book called The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, The Mysterious Death of What's My Line TV star and media icon Dorothy Kilgallen. And he has been pursuing her murder, like her his suspect his suspicions that she was murdered for more than a decade. Now, he presented scores of new documents and interviews to New York district attorney at the time, Cyrus Vance. Um, I think he got like fired for being really bad with uh, Harvey Weinstein, right? Bad with him? Like being like too lenient and letting him get away with things or not prosecuting him sooner. I think he's like a piece of shit. (laughs) Anyway, so we should go back after because he's gone now. Um, And this guy, the DA office sort of reopened the case looking into it more. But after six months, they closed again saying there was a lack of evidence to prove there was a murder. But I think this writer, I think he was sort of fired recently or or quit in scandal. So you should go back if you're listening. (laughs) Now, she does, uh, she was honored with a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And producers John and Drew Doddle, who created the show Waco or the miniseries Waco recently, they have purchased the option on his book and are developing a movie or possibly miniseries based on her life and, and mysterious death and all the conspiracies surrounding it. Who do you think should play her? Oh, that's interesting. I could picture like Joan Allen or yeah. someone like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. I need to see a picture of her first. She has a Joan Allen look, but Joan Allen is like the movie star version probably. Right, right, right. Um, so Yeah. That's basically it. Wow. That's a crazy life, right? Really wild. <laughs> she was ballsy. Yeah, she seems really cool. And it's kind of amazing how many big events during that period she was a part of. Like right. she's like Forrest Gump. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's just like everywhere. Like Yeah. But the Sam Shepard case, we have to do that at some time. Cause I'm telling you when I was reading it, it was fucking wild. Maybe I'll do that this week. Oh, maybe. I don't have a case yet. Do you know that story at I all? I do know it because I love the movie. Yeah. Oh, well, then you should do it. Okay, I'll do that mirror. this week and that'll... But yeah. there was so much stuff and I just like briefly looked it up on the Wikipedia, so I'm sure there's even more. Yeah. Like, I was just reading the Wikipedia to get like a brief rundown of yeah. what happened and it was like, I was like reading it. I was like, oh shit, I didn't know there was a whole other. <laughs> like, I just, I think because it was such a huge media thing, you're going to find like a lot of cool articles yeah, and I'm stuff excited. on it. And just like the salaciousness of it. Well, I'm really excited to rewatch The Fugitive, the movie with Tommy Lee Jones. I haven't seen it since it like Dude, came it, out or it something. It has like one of my favorite line deliveries in a movie ever, which is Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford facing off and they're like standing at the edge of that like, crazy like waterfall thing and Tommy Lee Jones just goes I don't care 
He's like, Harrison Ford's like, I didn't kill my wife. And he's like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it would be good. Okay, I we'll was do like that. totally into it when I was reading it. And I was like, I had to stop myself. I was okay, like, get cool. this fucking done. Well, like, that's good. It'll, it'll tie into this episode. Yeah. It'll be a, right. a little offshoot. So, yeah, if you're interested in reading more about Dorothy Kilgallen, there's a lot of Reddit boards on it that I didn't get too far into. We love a conspiracy. Uh, and there's, like, like I said, there's UFO stuff. Um, as you know, if you're into JFK stuff at all, everything always has a ton of information yeah. on it. And, yeah, I hope that miniseries happens because I think it would be really good. Absolutely. She's just fascinating. She is very fascinating. So, yep. Cool. That was awesome. Uh, I never even knew her story before, so it was really interesting. Cool. Um, Thank you to all of our listeners once again just for being so hot and amazing. Yeah. That wasn't planned. I just. just, (laughs) (laughs) Did you just say stupid? Oh, yeah. I'm going to fucking spank you when this is over, Desi. I'm I'm going to spank you. Literally looking forward to it. Okay, okay. Okay, okay. Okay. Bye. Bye.